Ever wonder what your therapist is really thinking? Well, that's confidential. But in this podcast, a few of my therapist friends and me show you what it's really like inside of a mental health professional's brain. Hi, welcome to Through the Eyes of a Therapist podcast. I'm Crystal Martinez Acosta, licensed professional counselor, board certified counselor. We discuss books, movies, TV shows, motherhood, current events, clinical issues, mental illness, trauma, and our own personal lives. So if you want to know what we're thinking, come on in, take a listen. Come see what the world is like through the eyes of a therapist, the podcast that destigmatizes mental illness, humanizes therapists, and demystifies therapy. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm going to be giving you a little bit of a summary and tell you my story about how I transitioned from working in the nonprofit sector as a counselor and therapist into running my own private practice. I'm really excited for this episode because a lot of times as a consultant and coach, I get a lot of questions about how to run your own private practice. These are the things that we don't get taught in graduate school when we are trained to become counselors. This is a completely separate life skill that we are not taught. And so it's really important, I believe, to be completely transparent about this process. A lot of times you'll probably get charged for a masterclass or a course on how to open your own private practice. And that's totally fine. What I want to do here in this episode is tell you about my personal journey. You can glean and take whatever you want from this episode. Just remember that I'm licensed in Texas. So wherever you're listening, the processes that I describe here might be a little bit different wherever you're at, if you're in a different state aside from Texas. It varies by region and by city as well. When we're talking about insurances, location, office spaces, things like that. So just keep all that in mind. But if you want a couple seconds to go ahead and grab a notepad, or if you want to open your phone or device to the note-taking section, this is your opportunity to do so because this is going to be an episode full of information I believe that you could probably use if you're interested in opening your own private practice. But again, this is my story and how I did it, why I did it, and my personal journey. So here we go. So first came the realization. I knew a long time ago, even probably when I was still in grad school, that I wanted to have my own private practice. It's just something that always appealed to me. I knew that I wanted to run a business. I wanted to be my own boss because I had a vision. I knew that I wanted to integrate my counseling expertise with, at the time, my personal training and fitness instructor expertise. Since then, my (laughs) body and mind have both changed a little bit. And the name of my business is Clarity Counseling Consultation and Wellness. And the reason I chose such a long name is because I wanted it to be so all-encompassing of all the things that I believe are needed for healing and adjustment and trauma treatment. So anyway, I'll get back to the name choosing situation in a moment. However, part of my journey was 
kind of going into the profession knowing already that I wanted to be in private practice. Along the way, I knew that it was going to be the ultimate goal, but I knew that I had to acquire some skills, training, and experience before I wanted to make the leap into private practice. This is different, I believe, for everyone. I know personally some of my colleagues and therapist friends who didn't want to necessarily go into the nonprofit sector or get experience in counseling at a nonprofit or at any other agency before going into private practice. They wanted to just go straight into private practice after getting fully licensed. So let's take a pause real quick and go back to what it takes to get fully licensed In previous episodes, I believe in season two, we talk about the process in how to get fully licensed as a professional counselor or a clinical social worker. So you should probably revisit those episodes. But in short, in order to become a fully licensed counselor in the state of Texas, meaning a licensed professional counselor or an LPC, such as myself, what you need to do is get a master's degree take something called the National Counselor Examination, acquire 3,000 hours of supervised practice, uh, 1,500 direct service hours, meaning face-to-face therapy service hours, and 1,500 indirect service hours, training, practice note-taking, self-study, things of that sort. So all of those hours over a period of 18 months with a supervisor, like myself, an LPCS, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor, who is approved by the Texas Board, and after those 18 months are over, voila, you are then fully licensed. So after I became fully licensed, I decided that I wanted to get as much experience as possible clinically, meaning seeing clients face-to-face, in groups, individually, even try out doing things that I had never done before, such as maybe doing couples work or trauma work or working with children, working with different populations so that I could figure out my niche. In that experience, then I would also try to figure out how billing insurances worked, how grant funding worked, and then also how the client load or case load works, right? So how many clients should I be able to see every day? What does my day-to-day look like? What can I actually handle without burning myself the hell out, right? So all of that I wanted to gain over a few years of practice. And some people didn't want to do it that way. Like I mentioned before, some people just went straight into their own private practice, opened their own business very quickly And kudos to them, they were able to do it and they still have awesome thriving practices and that's great. I wanted to be kind of taken by the hand, led by some supervisors and upper management and things like that. And we'll talk about that a little bit later as well. And yeah, so that's part of my own journey and my own decision-making process and why I wanted to go that route versus opening up right away, you know, my own business. So after approximately 10 years of working in various settings, so personally, I worked at an immigration shelter with unaccompanied minors. That was one of my settings. Another setting was the kind of acute hospital setting, like a psychiatric facility. 
I also worked at a nonprofit with adults. I worked at a nonprofit mostly, and this is where a big chunk of my experience came from, a local community mental health clinic with children who experienced trauma. And that's where I decided that I wanted to work with victims and survivors of trauma. And that's where I became niched in uh, doing psychotherapy with trauma. And so I think that that's where my experience for those 10 years became really valuable because I was able to gain thousands of hours of clinical experience doing kind of just one thing over and over, kind of perfecting my craft in trauma work and what that is like, getting lots of training in trauma-informed practices. So there's a difference between trauma treatment and trauma-informed care. Trauma-informed care is kind of this buzzword or buzz phrase that's going around a lot. And it talks about, um, or it encompasses the idea that you want to assume that everybody you encounter, including your staff, including your coworkers, anybody that you come across has probably experienced a trauma. And however they are interacting with you and the environment is likely from a trauma response. And so it explains their behavior. It doesn't excuse their behavior. And so this is definitely a lens to look at clients through, as well as everybody else in the system. So it's something to infuse your, it's something to infuse into the structure of your private practice if you want it to have the trauma lens, if you want to use the trauma lens in your practice. So there's that. Anyway, so that's a little piece of the journey. Um, now, the transition from going, you know, steady paychecks once every two weeks, being in a pretty secure position um, at the time at the community mental health clinic, I was a clinical supervisor. I had a caseload. I was responsible for running a program for uh, parent-child interaction therapy. Um, there were racist underpinnings and things kind of brewing in the organization that I became aware of a few years a few years before I decided to resign. And so that is something that kind of started to push me towards, okay, maybe this is the time that I should consider moving into private practice now. So this part of my journey is called the leap slash the push. <laughs> because I think if everything were to have still run pretty smoothly, if the organization that I was part of would have not, you know, I don't know how to say this in a political way, but I feel like if it would have not made me sick, then I would have probably stayed longer because it was a really great place to work for a really long time. I earned a lot of training. I um, was kind of probably going to move my way up the ladder eventually. I felt supported to, to a certain extent, um, but some of that stuff was just unacceptable to me and because of my ethics 
and social justice and my personal, my personality and my advocate, my inner advocate, I just couldn't stay there anymore. So um, that's why I think I call it the leap slash push. And so in 2019, right after my son was born, I literally was holding him in my left arm. (laughs) And while I was on maternity leave, I was thinking to myself, I need to start opening my private practice because I don't know if I can go back to this environment that is making me sick. And um, at the time, I felt was really not good for me and my health, my mental health, my physical health. So um, with my right arm, I began using my really old, slow computer um, to apply for different parts of the business. And this, these are the more logistical parts that you're going to want to start paying attention to. So this is where you want to get your notepad going. So the first thing that I did was I made an appointment with the um, local small business development center. So here in El Paso, we have a small business development center or the SBDC through El Paso Community College. Their services are completely free, which is amazing. So they have a set of mentors that you can make an appointment with at EPCC where you can talk with them about your goals and they do kind of an assessment with you. They sit you down, they talk with you about what kind of business you want to open. Do you want to do an LLC, a PLLC? Uh, What kind of business structure do you want to have? Um, And they kind of guide you through the basics of opening a business, which is really amazing. And so they sit with you for a few hours and you can make several appointments with them until you get some clarity on what you want to do with your business. So after getting some pretty good guidance from the SBDC, Small Business Development Center, locally, I was able to move forward with some logistics on my own. Again, with holding my baby in the left arm while he was sleeping, using my right hand, I was typing all sorts of stuff. So my next step was to go to the Secretary of State website, sos.state.texas.us, and there they have lots of information on choosing a business structure. Do you want an LLC or a PLLC? limited liability company or a professional limited liability company. These are the two main types of business structures that counseling businesses typically use. Why? Because two things. One, you definitely want to have a limited liability company because it keeps all of your assets, your business assets, separate from your name and your social security number. So let's say a client decides to sue you for whatever reason, all of your assets, your personal assets tied to your personal bank account, everything are separated from the LLC, a limited liability company. So that's what LLC stands for. The liability is limited to just your company. So that's some of the guidance that I got from the Small Business Development Center. Now, the difference between a PLLC and an LLC simply is just the word professional in front of the LLC. So if you want to have a business that is solely run by counselors, where you're only going to be doing counseling-related activities 
with people who are fully licensed, then a PLLC might be for you. I chose the LLC structure just in case I wanted to do other things in the business that were not counseling related, for example, selling (laughs) t-shirts. So that might not be necessarily a professional activity. And so for me, I wanted it to be an all-encompassing sort of business, which is why I chose an LLC. That's something that, again, the business development center that I visited helped me decide to do. So again, when you go to the sos.state.texas.us website, they have a bunch of information on there, a lot of links. Uh, You can do a lot of self-education and self-study about different types of business structures, including like corporations and things like that, that are, you know, probably for bigger businesses and things like that. And it talks about the differences and types of businesses that you can run. Anyway, so once you choose your business structure, then you want to choose the name of your business. Once you choose the name of your business, you also want to register it at that same sos.state.texas.us website. Now, you do have to do a business name search to make sure that you are not infringing upon somebody else's already chosen business name. So, for example, Clarity Counseling Consultation and Wellness does not infringe upon anybody else's already chosen and registered business name in Texas. So basically, by registering your business name, you have checked with a registrar in Austin that has looked and researched to make sure that there are no active businesses that have similar sounding names. So it's sort of kind of like a copyright kind of thing or trademark sort of thing to make sure that your registered business is unique in the way it sounds, the way it's spelled, and that's just good for the state of Texas. So that's something important. You can't just necessarily choose a name and put it on a business card and call yourself that name. For example, I wanted to use... Clarity counseling, but that already existed. So I needed to either make it longer or make it sound different or choose another language or change the spelling or do something to make it different. So I decided to make it longer with more of the details about what my business encompasses. So that's how I decided to set it apart. You also pay the fees associated with registering your business and once you register your business, that's it. It's, I think, a one-time $300 business fee. That varies by state. I think Texas is a more expensive state, and it's permanent. Anytime you want to make a change to your business name, your business address, you send in a form, and I think it's like 15 bucks per change. Like when I changed my address because of the pandemic, I had to send in a new address form and they changed it on record for 15 bucks, something like that. Part of registering your business, you also have to have a business address. I definitely do not recommend using your home address because when somebody Googles your business name, your address is going to come out and you do not want people to know where you live if you're a therapist. I mean, some people have their offices as a part of their home. And that's a different story, right? But I personally do not want people to know where I live. And so (laughs) I didn't want my business address to be my home address. So I did what's called a virtual office address. 
So for myself, I used something called a co-op working space, which is a physical address. It's actually an office. So if I do need to go into an office and work from there, I can pay by the hour to rent an office, rent a conference room, but it's also where I can receive physical mail, any subpoenas that come my way. They have a receptionist, things like that. So it's a service where the office is manned and there are people there, but I don't necessarily do business from that place. I just do it from my home because I do my counseling virtually. I do my counseling with Simple Practice, which I feel like I should apply for some kickbacks here because I'm promoting their product. But Simple Practice is really awesome. It's a electronic records system where your clients can log in from wherever they're at using a phone or a computer or any electronic device, and they can attend their session. Everything is encrypted. Nothing is recorded except for their notes, right? So if you write their note, it goes into their electronic record. They can sign consent forms. You can share assessments with them that they can fill out before their sessions and things like that. And it's kind of like an all-in-one place. You can even submit claims to insurance companies and all of that. So I use for the virtual part of my practice and seeing clients via telehealth, I use simple practice just because it's a lot easier to manage everything from one place. And so that's part of the logistics as well. So after you register your address and along with that, find your physical address for your business, you want to pay the fees, read all the instructions. You also want to find and consult with a great accountant. Mine is Adriana Alamo from Dallas, Texas, and she's great. I actually want to give you her information and I will put that in the show notes below. So if you want to hire her, she's in Texas. I think her business name is called Alamo Financial Solutions. Again, her name's Adriana Alamo. So she's a great accountant. You also want to ask yourself if you want to take insurance. So a lot of providers of psychotherapy and counselors typically will take insurance. Here in El Paso, Texas, we have Fort Bliss attached to us. So it might be something to think about if you want to take TRICARE or TriWest as an insurance so that you can see the military population so that they don't have to pay out of pocket. Or do you want to be completely private pay and don't want to deal with the rigmarole or racket of insurance companies, right? Um, each of them reimburse you at a different rate. You cannot talk about your rates with anyone that is in the contracts with each insurance company. So I can't even tell you in this podcast how much Blue Cross Blue Shield pays me or Cigna pays me. I can't necessarily tell you a range either. And I don't want to incriminate any of them for paying more or paying less. But the only ones that I do take right now are Cigna, because a lot of people in the El Paso area have Cigna. A lot of people in the El Paso area have Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas. And I also take United Optum. So those are the only three that I take. And the rest of the population that I see will be self-pay. Or the other things you have to consider are if you want to offer a sliding scale. So I think part of my ethical code which is the ACA Code of Ethics, is are you providing 
pro bono services or services that are low cost to the community of people who cannot afford services. And so I do have a few slots available for people who are under the poverty line that can't afford services on a regular basis, who are either receiving them for free, who are paying a nominal fee, or are taking advantage of the sliding scale that I have. You want to be objective with the sliding scale. You can't just go all willy-nilly and be like, oh, I like you, so I'm going to only charge you this much. So the way I did it was I looked at the HUD income limit scale and family size. So you can Google that um, online and kind of just look at what the average number of people in the household is along with the income limit, and you kind of go across and downward and find, you know, how much a person makes after having so many people in their household. And maybe you can come up with some sort of range, maybe $50 at the very minimum. And for example, your full fee of $200 a session, whatever it might be. I don't charge that much, by the way. (laughs) So self-pay rates, think about what your self-pay rates are going to be. And the way you get onto insurance panels, it can be a little bit complicated. You can hire somebody to do that. You can hire a biller. I did not do that. Again, with the baby in my left arm and my right hand free, I did that myself. So what I did was I went out, for example, to the Blue Cross Blue Shield website. With my right hand, I looked up the provider portals on the insurance companies. Wherever it says providers here or provider, you click on that click on the instruction booklets that they have. You can do self-study. If you have the time, you can do it yourself. I am like the queen of DIY. I'm also of Mexican heritage and I will not like pay (laughs) for people to do stuff that I can do or make myself. So I'm just saying it's possible to do these things on your own. And I did it with a baby in my hand. So if I can do it, then you can do it. And I'm also not necessarily the most organized or linear person on earth. And I'm just telling you that if you are, then you are at an advantage. So just follow the instructions. A lot of it is common sense. If you don't know what something means, you can always reach out to somebody. There's like a contact us page. You can call the 1-800 number for providers. You might be on hold for a little bit, but if you've got time and you don't have the money, you know, you can do it. Just be perseverant. And I think that's what's cool about opening your own business in counseling is that you don't need a lot of startup money. You know, I was on maternity leave. I was on a super tight budget. I did not have access to FMLA or seed money or a large inheritance or anything like that. You know, I'm part of the working class. And so I didn't have all this extra money laying around. I had to do everything myself. And so I didn't have all this extra income and I couldn't hire a biller. I couldn't outsource a lot of my stuff. I had to do it on my own. And so if you have the time, you can do it. You just have to really sit there and research some of these things. And I'm kind of giving you my experience and step-by-step of what it's like in Texas, but, you know, it just, if you really want to do it, you can find out how to do it. If you have a little bit of extra money on the side and you figure out, you know what, I really suck at billing, I really don't want to do the credentialing process, then you know what, you can hire that billing person. Maybe that's the one part of your 
private practice that you outsource. Or, you know what, I really don't want to register my business name on my own. I don't have time to do that or I don't have the patience. Okay, fine. Outsource that one piece. So just figure out for yourself what it is that you need to outsource. Or if you can't outsource anything, just take it a step at a time. If I could do it with a baby in my arm, then you can absolutely do it yourself. I'm just here to kind of inspire you and let you know that it can be done. Um, And if you know me, I'm more of like a big ideas person versus like a detail oriented person. So if I can do it, you can definitely do it. The last thing that you want to do is aside from setting your sliding scale, if that's something that you want to do, making sure you do some market research about your self pay rates, making sure that you don't, you know, charge $200 an hour if that's not what people are paying. But if you're like, you know what, I'm worth it, (laughs) then charge $200 an hour, you know. But doing some market research about what people are charging in your area, calling a few offices and saying, hey, I'm wondering about counseling. How much do you charge for self-pay per session? For example, personally, I charge a different rate for like an intake session just because it requires a little bit more paperwork. And then I charge a little bit less for subsequent sessions. That's for self-pay rates. And then you definitely want to think about how to niche yourself or set yourself apart. So for example, I'm a trauma therapist. I recently just submitted my paperwork for EMDR certification. I'm just waiting to hear back if I'm certified now. I probably am. I just have to check the website. So different things like that. What kinds of certifications do you have? What kinds of experience do you have? Do you work with children only? Do you do play therapy? Are you a certified trauma professional, which is something I'm also pursuing right now? What kinds of things or people do you deal with or serve? And how can you market that and set yourself apart? This is also part of networking, right? I am an introvert. Put me in a closet with snacks all day long and I'm good. You know, I should probably come out to shower, which is, you know, that's healthy. But generally, I don't like to do a lot of that because it drains my energy. But If I can build a community of people around me to just kind of let them know, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is how many slots I have available for now. Or, yeah, I'm available for this consult. This is what I would do with that client in this situation. Kind of just talk to some people little by little. Then the word's going to get out about who you are, what you do, what kind of personality you have, what kind of expertise you have, if you know what you're talking about. And so... I think it's interesting, though, in El Paso, it's a little bit different because we're kind of like little big town. Everybody kind of knows who each other is or are. And that's a whole other podcast episode, probably. But anyway, yeah, niche yourself, market yourself, network yourself. And it just takes some time. So just be confident in who you are, what you have to offer. Don't waver. Just because you have a first couple slow months doesn't mean that, you know, you should quit the private practice game. My first few months in private practice were on maternity leave. And so I had like one client for two months, one client, one client, one client. And I'm like, oh man, what did I do with my life? (laughs) I kind of started questioning my decisions. But then after that, I got two clients. Okay. But they were consistent, you know? And then I had three clients. Okay. I was consistent. This is at the end of 2019, right? And then 2020 comes, early 2020. And then I had like four or five clients. I'm like, okay. And everybody was consistent. Everybody was good. Then February came, 2020. This was right before the pandemic hit, right? At least in the United States and Texas. So right before the shutdown. And 
I have to mention that a big part of me starting my private practice was one of my good friends and colleagues, Myra Garcia. She opened her private practice called Liberacion Therapy, and she truly inspired me to open my own practice. She inspired me and pushed me and guided me and held space for me during the time that we were being discriminated against at our organization. And so I have to give her a shout out because she was amazing. But anyway, she was really patient with me and she sublet the office to me so that I could get my feet off the ground with my private practice. And so once the pandemic hit, her and I decided, okay, we need to go virtual. And that's when I returned to my full-time job so that I could have a steady income just in case my private practice didn't take off, right? And that is something that I see a lot of practitioners doing, right? I'm part of a lot of Facebook groups like Clinicians of Color in Private Practice or the Private Practice Startup Group on Facebook, things like that. And a lot of people are really afraid to leave their full-time positions or their part-time salary positions to open their practice full-time. And I think that that was a little bit of a mistake for me. And let me tell you why. So like I had mentioned before, my full-time position and agency, that system was making me sick, right? So after maternity leave, I returned to that system with either naive enthusiasm or giving them the benefit of the doubt. I don't know. I just felt like, you know what? Clean slate. I'm back from the maternity leave. Everything's going to be better. But my body was rested. I felt good. I had my private practice on the side. I was like, this is something for me to look forward to. And I'm working towards my lifelong goal that I had planted the seed of in graduate school. So, you know, I was feeling good. But then a few incidents happened (laughs) where it was a slap in the face and a wake up call for me to leave that freaking place. So then I was like, you know what? Okay, no, we're not doing this. I left a lot of unpaid PTO behind and I was like, I'm done. We're good. So I left in February 2020 that job, but then I moved to a group private practice for a steady income because I was still afraid. I was still afraid of being on my own, which I feel is normal. So a lot of you that are listening to this podcast are probably also freaking out about opening your private practice full-time. And I did this for a year, right? I stayed with the group private practice. It was called Counseling of El Paso, and they're the most amazing, loving, most healing people that I have ever met. Like, I want to cry right now just thinking of how loved and supported I felt at this place. They are so awesome. So if you are looking to join a group practice. I think they're still hiring. Anyway, it's called Counseling of El Paso and they're on the west side of El Paso and awesome people. I did an episode with them about COVID-19 in season three. So I think it was my very last episode before this relaunch. So anyways, I did that for a year, but then my body was like, okay, we're done. Like we can't be working these two jobs. (laughs) Like you can't be running your own private practice and doing this group practice work. Like you need to decide because we're getting sick like physically. So long story short, breakdown like of my body. So more recently, I've been focusing on my physical health, my mental health, going to therapy, going to doctors, getting getting my stuff together. And as of, when was it? 
May. Yeah, I think. May of 2021, I've been doing private practice full-time, right? So full-time in private practice is considered, I think, like 25 clients a week. It's different from an agency job or working for someone else because the pay is significantly higher. Yes, you have to pay overhead, like you have to pay rent and the electronic health record system and other fees and taxes and things like that, right? But a lot of that is automated and a lot of that is just kind of, you set up your bank account, you set up a savings account, you save a certain amount every month, whatever is left over, you then pay yourself a certain salary every couple weeks or every week, however you want to do it. When tax time comes, you pay your taxes, you pay your rent, you pay any other fees that come your way. You rely a lot on your accountant, your tax person, you automate as much as you can. And I feel like that's how I've been able to handle all of this because also I'm not good at math. Just saying, if I can do this, you can do this. If you have any questions about private practice, anything that comes up for you, anything that I missed, please let me know. I'm an open book about this. I, I'm not going to charge you for my masterclass. <laughs> But again, these are the experiences that I had in Texas. It's It might be different for people in other states. I did have a couple of questions come in from Instagram and Facebook that I'll answer real quick before we go. So the first one is, do you need more licenses to open a private practice? Uh, no, you don't. You just have to be licensed in you know, in the state of Texas, either an LPC or an LCSW, there are some board changes coming up to where LPC associates, the provisionally licensed or the pre-fully licensed individuals, might be able to open their own private practices soon. So that's something that's coming up the pipeline very soon, probably. What legal paperwork do you need to get started? Again, go to the sos.state.texas.us website. You can also go to places like LegalZoom. That's a place where you can outsource that kind of paperwork if you don't want to do the step-by-step on your own. And what's one thing most people don't know about private practice? I think most people don't know that you can make more per hour than what you would make at an agency. So for example, If my base rate for somebody who is paying out of pocket is like $100 an hour, that's very different from what I would walk away with at my previous job. Even though I was maybe middle management, I was making like $27 an hour. So yes, I have to pay taxes. I have to pay rent and overhead and things like that. But I get to look and see where my money goes and I get to decide what happens with that money. And I think that it's just the amount of power control, empowerment, decisiveness, and freedom and liberation that you feel when you have your own private practice. For example, I can check my email when I'm in the bathtub. Ain't nobody gonna tell me nothing about it. You know what I mean? I can also reply to an email when I'm in bed or like if I need to research something When my son is taking a nap, I can do that. I don't have to go into an office if I don't want to get exposed to COVID-19. Just things like that. I think it's just the level of freedom that I've always wanted. And especially now that I have my two-year-old, I get to make my own schedule. So for example, I work Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. 
That's freaking amazing. And the rest of the week in the mornings, I take care of him every day. And so whenever my husband gets home, he takes care of him and we switch. And so I get to see my son grow up, you know, during the day. And I get to be there for certain moments that I feel like I probably would have missed out on had I had a 40-hour a week job, nine to five situation, you know? And so I'm saving money on childcare. I'm saving time and I just have so much freedom and I don't have to really answer to anybody. I mean, yes, I have to be accountable to the board, ethics, laws, and things like that. But I get to manage the way those things work and the way they look. And if you are on the fence <laughs> about doing something like this and, you know, you kind of have, you hear some of yourself in me, like, I really need that freedom or I have kind of that personality where I want to make my own decisions about my life or, you know, I'm scared because I don't know what I'm going to do about health insurance. Girl, no. Let me tell you, I pay the marketplace for my health insurance. Or I did for a while, and then now I just rely on my husband's health insurance, but I still pay him for my share of the health insurance. So there are ways to get around these things or these obstacles. They're not things, they're obstacles. So there are ways to get through these obstacles. It doesn't have to be something that stops you. So I truly hope that you found this podcast informative, inspiring. And of course, if you want to connect with me, I ask you to do so. I wish you all the best and see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Through the Eyes of a Therapist podcast. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And please connect with me, Crystal Martinez Acosta, licensed professional counselor on Instagram at Through the Eyes of a Therapist pod. More information about booking me for therapy or training can be found there. Until next time, keep on fighting the stigma and go to therapy. I'll see you next time.